Hello and a warm welcome to the Centre Left Politics Podcast with me, Malcolm Clark, and my co-host Carl Quilliam. It's Friday, the twenty-fifth of February, twenty twenty-three. We record the day before, but this is when you'll hear it. And um, before we get started, please do remember to subscribe so you get notified every Friday at five PM when a new episode is released. You can email us throughout the week at centreleftpod at gmail.com. And we do have a new Twitter account at CLP Pod, which has one follower and you're listening to him. So please do give us a follow. Um, we're delighted to be joined this week by a special guest, uh, Pat Glass, who's the former MP for North West Durham between 2010 and 2017. Pat was a former shadow minister. She held senior shadow ministerial positions in transport, Europe and education. Uh, Pat's going to stay with us for the full podcast today, so we're very grateful. And therefore, we're going to split the show between Pat uh, asking Pat some questions and then taking her view and, of course, Carl's and my view on the latest political news. So um, before I bring Carl in for the usual uh, update on his washing machine, um, I'll bring you in, Pat. Welcome. And uh, how has your week been? Um, my week's been great. I, uh, I was in York yesterday where I was um, somewhat delayed by... Uh, cancelled trains coming across the Pennines um, but I did get home eventually uh, I've been in Darlington today trying to track down some fruit and veg um, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a good week it, it shows you how bad things are when a good week is searching for fruit and veg oh, yeah uh, Carl how's your week been uh, it's been good I've been uh, as, as you know Malcolm I've been starting a new job this week so I've just been getting scripts with that Learning the ins and outs of a WeWork in Waterloo. Uh, I was in Parliament on Wednesday at an event with the Home Builders Federation. Uh, I got to say, um, uh, as we're on the Centre Left Politics podcast, I'll say I got to bump into Liz Twist MP. Say hello. So, uh, yeah, I had a good week. How about you? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, again, I, I was in London too. Um, I did get a message from Carl's wife, to, all above board, Pat, but um, just to say that Carl had left his phone at home and couldn't meet me on Tuesday. Um, so I'm, I, I took him at his word. It wasn't him pretending to be his wife saying, I'm not coming to see you. But uh, there you go. But well done. Yeah, but I'm glad, glad it's gone well, Carl. Um, nice, easy start by the sounds of it. Um, yeah. So this is actually quite a bit of a first for us, Pat, actually. We've actually got an email from a listener. Um, and we'll take your views on it. Now, I'm not sure if this is real. And I've, I've been trying to work out all week who, who's a, who this actually is. But... We got an email from Greg the Egg, the Tuscan Raider, and I'm just hoping that's not an offensive phrase that I'm not aware of, um, but this is what Greg the Egg says. He says, uh, Hi, Carl and Malcolm. Brexit and Trump polls, to name a couple, were completely wrong. Do you honestly think when it comes to walking into the poll station that Labour will storm an election if it was held today? The last general election saw the working classes resonating more with Etonian Boris than they did with Jeremy Corbyn. Or was it simply voting to get Brexit done? Has Kia really done enough to get them back on side? That is the, the listener's question. Thank you for that question, whoever Greg the Egg is. It might be his real name, who knows. Uh, but Pat, there's, there's a couple of points in there. Uh, do you want to take mm-hmm. first stab at some of the points that he raises? Would Labour storm an election if it was held today and are the polls accurate? Uh, well, the polls, uh, Labour have been 25 to 28% ahead in the polls now for a few weeks. Um, but we know that as the election gets closer, the polls will narrow. Um, we also know that from experience, there's an awful lot of shy Tories out there who um, 
vote well, who, whatever they do in the privacy of the, the polling booth, are not prepared to share with pollsters that they're Tories, clearly embarrassed about what their friends and colleagues will think. I kind of think it's been so long now, there's probably a 10 to 15% lead baked on. I think the rest of it is a bit flaky. We'll see. However, um, moving on to kind of the second part, so I don't, will it be in 1997? I'm not sure. It'll definitely not be in 1992. I kind of think that Labour may not get a massive majority, but that there's a good, solid working majority in there. Um, moving on to the uh, uh, what happened at the last election, um, I mean, my seat is now a Tory seat, uh, which was a safe Labour seat. When I retired in 2017, there was a 10,500 majority. Yeah. Now it's a Tory seat. So clearly things have changed, and I kind of think there's been um, a, almost a kind of tectonic plate in, uh, plate changing in some of our politics. I mean, you look at uh, Dominic Raab's seat, which was 25,000 majority in 2017, and he's sitting on a 2,000 majority now. So clearly things have changed. I think a lot of that is around the Remain vote. So I think Brexit and Remain has an awful lot to do with that. But, you know, I'm well known. People come and talk to me all the time because they know who I am even if I don't know them. And I'm really surprised by how many people are now complete strangers um, coming up to me and saying, God, this government. I think it's got possibly, um, you know, I do think that, that Keir has done enough. However, I don't think he's done nearly as much as Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak to lose the election. And and they always say, you know, they, the people who know these things, that it's not oppositions that win, it's governments that lose. And I think this government is doing an incredible job of galloping towards a disaster at the next election. Yeah, I agree, Pat. I think it's sometimes the perfect storm, isn't it, where you get a credible opposition and a lot of what the um, the Tories are doing. Keir Starman, I think today we're going to get on to what he said at the, at the speech mm. today, um, came across very credibly. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to be that stable alternative. Carl, what's your thoughts on the issues that the, the, the listener emailed in with? Um, well, I think I, I, I agree uh, with Pat, the, you know, the Tories, and I think we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, the Tories are doing a very good job of hurtling towards defeat. Um, I think on the, I mean, I think it's worth just on the polls points, you know, Brexit polls were wrong, Trump polls were wrong. They weren't that wrong. Um, you know, I think there's, the, given, where the la- given where the Labour lead is now, I think there's a good chance that the polls now are wrong just because we're in fairly unprecedented times. I think it's going to be quite difficult for pollsters to judge the the scale and strength of this massive Labour lead that we've been seeing fairly consistently now for a few months. But if actually you look at the Trump polls, Trump didn't win the popular vote. Um, the polls weren't exactly right, but they weren't. They were within a few points, which is all you can expect from polls. Similarly with Brexit. You know, the, the polls showed a variety of outcomes in the weeks just before the Brexit vote, um, and they were, it was well within what you call the kind of margin of error. So I think, you know, where the polls are, there's every chance that they're wrong, but they're never going to be that wrong. Yeah, no, I agree with that totally. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much to the listener there who emailed in. Really appreciate the chance to talk those points through, and I'm sure we'll come back to a few of those points later on in the podcast. 
So for the next section, um, as we've got Pat here, even though we're going to have Pat commenting on you know the weekly news discussion later on, uh, we'd be remiss not to ask her a few questions uh, about her time as a member of parliament. It's, a, it's quite a rare thing for someone to do, so we'll take the opportunity to quiz her about it. So we've got a few questions. Um, and then we'll get on to discussing the news as listeners would normally expect us to do. Um, so, Carl, uh, we've got a few questions lined up there. So, Carl, do you want to start? Then we'll take one at a time. Happy to. Thanks, Malcolm. So, Pat, what do you remember most about your seven years as an MP? Um, all right. Uh... I remember the Education Select Committee. I was on the Education Select Committee for five years and I chaired it for about six months because the Conservative chair had a very serious skiing accident. Um, so I chaired that for about six months and that was great. And I regularly had Liz, Liz Truss in front of me. I have to say it's somewhat underwhelming um, in her presentation. But uh, um, so I loved, I loved the Education Select Committee. Uh, I remember the, re the, the, the papers came out really late. I used to have to collect them on a Tuesday night for a Wednesday morning. And therefore, I, and these were great thick piles of paper. So I remember going home on Tuesday night and getting up really early on a Wednesday morning, getting in early, about half seven, eight o'clock, to read the Education Select Committee papers, which were fabulous. I mean, the stuff you got from Parliament, from the House of Commons Library and from the House of Commons staff, the, the, the research and the paperwork was amazing. So I loved that, and I, um, I remember that. I remember the travelling. Um, people don't realise that MPs, particularly from my part of the country, from Scotland, wherever, you know, we travel down on a Monday and we come back on a on a Thursday or a Friday. Um, people expect you to be in Parliament at every session, but also expect you to be in concert in the in the uh, in the constituency office. Um, so I remember the the travelling. Spent huge amounts of my life travelling, and there, but it was great for reading. You could read so much on on, on the train. Uh, I remember the constituency work. It was great. I loved the stuff that I did in my constituency, where you were genuinely helping people. I mean, before I'd gone into Parliament, I worked in education in some very senior roles. And I would go home at night and think, do you know what, I did a good job. I really made a difference. When I first went into Parliament as an opposition MP, I would go home and think, I made no difference whatsoever today. But in the constituency, I did. I could, I, as a backbench opposition MP, you make... No, you, you, you contribute, but you don't actually influence in government, uh, the government. In the constituency, as a constituency MP, you can make a difference to people's lives. So I really enjoyed that. But those were kind of the main things I remember about being an MP. Did you so did you find it frustrating being in opposition? Then you said you were you didn't feel like you were making a difference always. And yeah, I spent seven years in opposition. All the time I was in there, I was there, I was in opposition. And no matter how um, strong your argument was, I found if the government didn't like it, they would they would they would listen, and it wouldn't make any difference. But you might find the things that you said creeping into. Um, practice later and I definitely found that with the select committee we would produce amazing reports the government had to respond within uh, six weeks I think they would kind of dismiss all the recommendations 
But within three, four months, you found them finding their way into government policy because they couldn't say, yes, that's a good idea, we'll do that. They had to dismiss it, but they would actually bring it back later. It was a bit frustrating, but, you know, we got some good things through. So, so Pat, what, I mean, I guess this, this is such an obvious question, I guess, but what do you think, first of all, the, the best thing about being an MP is, you probably answered that actually when you said your community stuff, but was that the best thing that you did, you think, as, as an experience when you look back? I think, yeah, the stuff that we did in the constituency, I had a really good team of people. We worked really well together. But the team of people in the constituency and the member of staff I had in, in London as well. But we made a difference to people's lives. They would come to us with things. I remember a nurse coming to see me who'd worked all her life in the health service, had always been PAYE, and she'd got a bill when she retired from HMRC for £38,000 back tax and she couldn't sleep she just could not sleep, and we got that completely overturned it was stupid but sorry i shouldn't say that to hmrc they may be listening <laughs> i'm very sorry it was there's not I loads mean, of listeners the dory no they made a <laughs> they made a genuine error and they put it right but that was the kind of thing that we were able to do um so yeah that was the best of of being in parliament and conversely, if I'm asking you about the best thing, I should probably ask you about the, the worst thing as well. Well, I, I think the the social media was awful sometimes. Um, I, I When I retired, I left Twitter and Facebook, and I've never got involved in any social media since. And I think my mental health is better as a result. The social media stuff, you you know, I had a member of staff who did Facebook and I never looked at it um, because it was so bad. Um, but I think the wor- very worst thing was the terrorist attack on Parliament, the guy who came in and killed Keith Palmer. And that was, I was just thinking about that today, that was about six weeks before I retired. And I think, quite frankly, that was the end for me. That was a guy who stood on the gate, on the carriage gates, who I would see most mornings. We didn't know each other well, but I knew his name and he knew mine. Um, and that was a that was a terrible, terrible event. And for me, it was kind of the last straw. Yeah, I can totally appreciate that. Um, mm. So just to sort of take you back to the start, Pat, I'm jumping in on Carl's question, but I had one that popped into my mind that I thought I'd ask. Um, on a slightly lighter note, um, you obviously had a full career before you went into Parliament and quite a successful one. And, and I just wondered what it felt like the first time you went into the House of Commons as a member of Parliament, what it felt like. Well, it, it, the first time I went in as an MP, because I had worked as a senior government advisor in London before I was an MP and I had been in and out of um, Parliament as an advisor. Oh, sorry, so, I, I, I meant the chamber. The, the oh, House right, the chamber. chamber. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I noticed was how small it is. It's, it looks much larger than it actually is. You, It's a very um, almost intimate place. You are very close to the opposition uh, uh, or the government and them to us. Uh, there's not a seat for everybody. But it felt, gosh, I mean, I worked in a historic building in a um, historic palace. Uh, and you are, you are almost. I was almost overwhelmed by the sense of history, being in there, sitting in those seats, sitting in seats that people who, you know, we 
we've read about for years and seen on the TV. Uh, I remember one night, late at night, when we had a late sitting, I was walking along the corridor behind the chamber and they dip the lights at night after the staff have gone when it's just the MPs there. And it becomes quite eerie and I was walking along thinking, gosh, I wouldn't be surprised if Churchill just walked around the corridor, around, around the corner into the corridor. It's, it is an amazing place, but particularly at night. Do you miss that element of it, the, you know, the, the building and the, the atmosphere and, and that side of things? I do. Um, I, I, I kind of look back sometimes and think I do miss, I miss London. I worked a long time in London before I was an MP and I do miss London. Um, I do miss the Parliament. Uh, we're going down in a few weeks' time because if you've been a member of Parliament for two terms, you get a, a lifetime pass. So we're going down to, for various things I have to do, and I'm going to renew my pass and meet up with some friends. Um, and yes, I do, I do. I do miss it. I mean, I didn't at first, but I think as time goes on, I do a little bit more. Will, it, will that be the first time you've been down since you left? No. No, no I've been... No, no, I've been a number of times. I was... Um, interestingly, a, a Tory MP who was on the Education Select Committee with me, who I always got on with really well, uh, Damien Hines, he became Secretary of State for Education shortly after I retired and he got in touch with me and asked me to come down and have a, um, an open chat about education because he knew my background. You know, He knew that I'd been a, a Director of Education, I'd been a um, uh, a, a government advisor. I've worked in virtually every area of education. So he said, come down. We had a really nice chat about the things that I thought that needed to happen and what I thought had worked, what hadn't worked in my time working in education. So sometimes you do get on with the opposition. Yeah, it's a shame Gillian Keegan's not doing that now, I think. Um, but yeah, we, well, we I, didn't know Gillian, I didn't know Gillian <laughs> Keegan. Uh, so, Pat, we, we speak to, to many Labour candidates and we, we follow in selections because now, obviously, the fact that Labour are expected to have a good result, um, everyone who's sort of sniffing around Tory majorities of 15,000 or less with a, with a sort of wicked <coughs> glint in their eye, I think. Um, so, as a, as a former MP, um, and noting some of the things that we've talked about, what advice would you give any aspiring candidate who's thinking about standing, like, you know, sort of a the real things to be aware of um, and obviously as well I know that in the Labour Party we try and ensure a, a gender balance and I know you were always very keen for, for women to stand as candidates so what, what would you say to people about if they want to become an MP what do they really need to think about? Well I, I have had this conversation actually with quite a few people you can imagine um, there's a number of uh, young people at the moment looking at seats and there's going to be an awful lot to contest uh, I'm aware of in, in, in the northeast, um, quite a lot of uh, senior and long-term MPs who are standing down. So I've had this conversation with quite a lot, and what I try to do is focus on the practicalities of being an MP. The working in London, you know, people have worked in the northeast and haven't worked in London, haven't lived away from home. Think about the impact of living in two places. Think about the impact on your family, because there is an impact on your family. Um, it's especially hard, I think, on women, because even though there is a gender balance in Labour, there isn't the same gender balance in other parties. 
So women are still, um, you know, the, there's nowhere near 50% of the MPs are women. And I certainly found, and I hope it's improved now, you know, I, I remember saying to, when, I, when I hadn't been in Parliament long, and somebody asked, a reporter asked me, you know, how are you settling in? And I said, if I'd gone to a boys' public school, I'd have fitted right in. But as a girl or a woman who went to a comprehensive school in the northeast and has an accent, it was it was much harder. And they are, I have to say, the government uh, MPs, men, were particularly difficult. If you had an accent, they would when the cameras weren't on them, you know, there was some some antics went on. But the other things that I will say is learn learn your craft. When you go in there, don't try to be a minister overnight or a shadow minister. Um, I kind of think on reflection, you know, I was in a shadow ministerial post really quite quickly because of my background. And I didn't really have time to learn the craft. Go into the House of Commons, sit there at night when they're having debates at night because there's some really good debates at night. Learn how things are done because there's a different language you know, what we call an agenda, they call an order paper. All that bobbing up and down that they do in the chamber, there's a sequence to it. It's about getting in and you you have to learn how to do it. And it's easy once you learn the routine. Once, you, But I always say to these people, learn your craft before you try to be a, a minister or a shadow minister. Um, around gender, as I said, the you know, there's more than 50% of MPs in the Labour Party now are women. However, that is not the case across the house. So, although um, although in Labour, you know, you don't get this um, gender imbalance, uh, it, it, it isn't, you know, it is still mainly a male, middle-aged, white um, uh, chamber. And even re that's even reflected in things like the toilets. You know, you've got to scout around to find a lady's toilet. When you find where they are, that's great. But they're not as, as frequent as, as, as men's toilets. See, I would never appreciate that in a million years. Mm. Would I? Just wouldn't no, no. Carl. No, no, but so it's even down to the practicalities like that. Well, I think what we... Uh, obviously, we're going to move on to the kind of broader discussion soon, but I think we wanted to ask specifically about the northeast obviously there's going to be a mayor that covers a wider area than the current uh, north of time mayor does bringing in the old uh, NECA areas mm -hmm. do you think that's a positive thing for the northeast well i was um i was against the initial deal that was offered largely because i thought it was insulting you know if we'd been offered in the northeast what was offered in Manchester and Birmingham, etc. Then yes, by all means, because I'm I am in favour of devolution. Um, however, I was against the first deal because I thought it was crumbs from the table. It is a better deal now, and I think if if we do get a Labour government, and talking to Lisa Nandy about this, you know, she was saying they are going to go um, big on devolution. They're going to uh, devolve a lot more power down to the the mayor. And they're also going to use it to fill what they see as the gaps that the Tories have left in their policies. So you know, there's huge gaps around education. All the schools have become academised. There's nothing, you know, there's a gap between the governance, for instance, and you know, whole, whole areas that I used to get involved with, like admissions and um, uh, 
children with special education needs. There's huge gaps there now. So they're going to look at and things like social care, massive gaps in social care. So they're going to look at, you know, try to fill some of those governance areas uh, with, with the mayoral role. Um, so overall, I am in favour of it. And so far, we've had two um, candidates declare, and I personally am backing Kim McGuinness, and I'm supporting her campaign and raising money and raising awareness for Kim because I think she'll make a fabulous Northeast Mayor. Uh, and I think if we, you know, we have to learn from Scotland and Wales, it's been extremely successful there. There's no reason why, and Manchester and Birmingham, there's no reason why it can't be hugely successful in the Northeast. Great, thank you, Pat. And uh, we do have a tentative agreement with Kim to come on the podcast at some point later in the campaign. So we look great. Well, I'm seeing her soon, so I will mention it again to her. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, thanks for all those answers, Pat. And obviously, we're going to hear a lot more from you in the in the, the second section here where we discuss things that have happened this week. Um, and our plans for the show was, you know, changed completely. We had Keir Starmer's major speech yeah. in Manchester today, uh, obviously tomorrow when people listen in, if they listen quickly. Um, and he launched um, very well, I thought, um, his five missions for a Better Britain, uh, and if you want the PDF out of you, I do have it, uh, which um, echoes, sort of echoes of the five-point pledge of 97, which we all know did reasonably well. Um, and he made five key pledges. I'm not going to read them out, but if you if you want me to, I will. Um, but what he said was that Labour will cure the Tory, and there was this, this phrase was used repeatedly, the sticking plaster politics um, of Rishi Sunak, and that's going to be uh, cured through again a slogan that you're going to hear a lot more of, clearly an important one: mission-driven government of Keir Starmer. That's his intention. Um, he made a number of specific pledges. One that I was interested in was the zero carbon British electricity by 2030, um, which sounds like a great pledge, but actually the government already pledged 95%, so it's not a huge reach, but they want to get that fully over the line. Um, and training for people to be uh, heat pump fitters. Um, but there was no mention of home heating or transport in terms of net zero, which is the, the two big challenges to getting there. Um, so, Carl, um, I appreciate you've been reasonably quiet for a while. And uh, <laughs> thank you for that. But uh, did you see the speech um, and what was your thoughts on, on this as a sort of a set piece moment? And I'll bring Papa in after that. Um, I didn't see the speech. I, I read the speech and I saw a lot of what came out after it. I thought it was, I mean, I think the whole presentation of it, the, like you say, the effectively a pledge card, it's not, it's not quite that because the pledge card was very, had very specific policies. These are the kind of largely overarching areas, but it was all very nicely and slickly done. It had all the graphics to go with it. There was posts across all various social media you know things popping up on linkedin twitter or all, all, all over the place so it was yeah it was i think it sent all the right messages <coughs> i think it's a good answer to a lot of the kind of um backbiting that's happened uh, actually not as much recently but in the past about labor not having enough kind of policies not setting out a clear agenda i think this really you know, barring the launch of the manifesto, I think this really kind of puts it to bed. There's some real clear priorities in there, and I'm sure we'll see. You know, this is this will be the start of um, more detailed policies starting to appear under those headings. So I, I thought it was, yeah, it was the the right moment for it, um, and I think it, yeah, it all worked really well. 
Yeah, and I thought he came across very confident, um, answered the press questions very well. Uh, there was a lot of comments on positions he may have previously taken prior to this. Pat, would um, do whether you've got a chance to, to see it, um, but what was your thoughts on, on on this as a starting point of, of clearly a more election-footing Labour at this point? Well, I, I think that at this, this far out from an election, you're not going to get detail. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember 1997 and just before, well, in the lead up to the election, the two or three years leading up to the election, Labour coming out with all kinds of white papers. And the one I was specifically interested in was something called the Guilfoyne document that dealt with special educational needs, which was my area at the time. And I, you know, I thought, this is it. This is what it's going to be. When they got into government, I remember asking a minister, where is it? Where's all this stuff? And they said, oh, that's in opposition. Now we're in government. Nothing, no plan will, will um, survive contact with, with government. It's, you, all you can do is put out broad mission statements and you see what happens when you get into government. And I think that's what this is. I was particularly keen on the one around... Um, Breaking down the barriers to uh, to to um, breaking down the barriers to opportunity at every stage. Clearly, with my background in education, and given that the, the gap between those children who come from the least well-off homes and the better well uh, the better-off homes has widened under the current government. Clearly, I, this is something that I would get excited about. I don't expect there's going to be any detail around it for a long, long time. But it's a really good aim, isn't it? I agree, and I think the Labour. I mean, what Labour are currently doing, and it's a it's a process um, that's currently under underway, is they've got the the five policy commissions that are looking into specific, and it's bringing in CLPs, and I'm sure you'll be having discussions, Pat, as a as, as the local chair for Northwest Durham, and that, and uh, as we begin the boundary review, it might that might well change slightly, but um, the members are involved. Then you've got the NPF, and there's numerous de- things going on this year that will eventually get to conference in, in the autumn with a with a potentially a, a manifesto put together um so this is kind of just that sort of showpiece thing i thought it was done very well like that was my overall i watched it and i just thought what struck me was his confidence he looked i mean i know like it's easy to think that because sometimes he can get swayed along by the momentum of it no pun intended um in terms of what i thought was telling was he he said tough on crime tough on the causes of crime. He said, you've heard that before, but it works. And I thought, mm. it's been a while since a Labour... I mean, he didn't say, the, didn't say Blair's name, but I thought it's been a while since someone's been confident enough in the Labour Party, but also more widely, to refer to, to something that Tony Blair did or New Labour did that directly and still be confident. So it just shows, you know, how the polls are coming through in his leadership, um, which I think is quite telling. And th- there's a wider point in terms of the... Um, the polls in terms of them showing that Labour at like 50%, how high does it go? And I think what will be really interesting is if they start to tighten back in, like you mentioned earlier, Pat, that, that you think that how it'll play out actually in practice, which I actually agree with, um, because it's, we're reaching a point now where, say, for example, it went from 50 down to 47 or 45, just to use a, a milestone number. You know, you'd start getting the media saying like, oh, it's all over. You know, it's it's coming crashing down. and reality is that's still a big big margin ahead um so i think it's interesting that they're how that plays out carl did you have any any further thoughts on that in terms of the the, the different areas that's highlighted yeah there, i mean there was a couple of things one um 
I suppose to your point, it's. I think it's still interesting that the media narrative isn't yet. Labour have got this in the bag. I mean, I, I understand why, um, be, uh, because you know there's still a long time to go. The Conservatives are still in government; they still have every opportunity um, to pull it back. But it, it's been the lead's been consistent now for months. It's a long way back, and it's a long way back. And we've talked about this here before. For a prime minister, for what, whatever his talents are, he's not the best um, at politics generally <laughs> and I, I, won't, I won't elaborate on that too much because I know we've talked about it a lot before but um, I think yeah so I think that's interesting I think the one note of caution and the thing that I was a bit taken aback by was the kind of headline pledge which was a direct pledge really to say we want the highest sustained growth in the G7 by the end of a Labour administration. That is a big call to make. Governments can have a lot, you know, can impact growth a lot. They can do a lot to kind of pull the levers, work with business. But there are a lot of other things, as we've seen with the war in Ukraine, as we've seen with COVID, um, that can derail that. So that is a that's a big one. And my worry would be, and I, I'm sure they must have had this conversation in the leader's office, but. For whatever reason that doesn't happen um but it's a long way off so and i i obviously have every faith that kia can do it so yeah patty do you have any thoughts on that my sort of initial view would be that they'll sort of if that didn't happen would blame someone else but do you have any more positive spin on that <laughs> well i kind of think um it's if you look at where we are now it's kind of a low bar isn't it i mean we are we are chugging along the bottom and getting worse. So at the, only, at the risk of sounding corny, things can only get better, can't they? You know, um, That's worked before as well. But I just kind of think, yeah, securing the highest sustained growth in the G7, it's great, and, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be underpinned by so many things. All of those things underneath, all those other things he said, is underpinning that. And if we don't get those other things right, then you're not going to get... The, um, the highest sustained growth in the G7. I mean, you know, more, I know Germany's not doing very well at the moment like us, but, you know, better than Germany, better than France, better than some of these, you know, these countries. Um, but do you know what? It's, uh, it, from where we are now, you know, anything is better, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. And, and I certainly think that you've got to go big or go home. And we know that positivity mm. wins elections as well. So people mm. want to hear, and, and if you look, it's it's not it's not a populist position, but we know that the pop, you know, people like to hear what they want to hear, and and people don't want to hear that we might get one percent. You know, they want to hear something ambitious, and and mm. that I think that will play well. I'm sure he means it. I'm not saying for a second that he doesn't genuinely want this, but I think you have to. We've learned recently that being uh, being equivocal in elections and promises. You know, we saw a lot of promises in the EU referendum uh, that that didn't come to pass, and that's a whole other whole other story. Um, and a lot that did. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And it's, it just shows, but the the sort of the in that election before the result, the the biggest promises that weren't necessarily real seem to mm. get through. Um, on that sort of segue nicely into that point, um, earlier in the week, Keir Starmer called for a vote on uh, the post Brexit rules for Northern Ireland, um, and he did say that Labour would support a new deal at the Commons, 
uh, vote and he actually in PMQs which we get on to later he, he said you know don't worry Prime Minister just call the vote we'll back you type of thing so playing into the, the old weak argument of Sunak that, become, that we always talk about um, however any new deal that is struck by Rishi Sunak could face opposition from the from the usual suspects of Tory MPs as well as the DUP which is the Northern Ireland's largest unionist party um, there's a lot of pressure on Sunak because Boris Johnson made another one of his quote unquote helpful interventions um, and called for him, called for Sunak not to abandon the legislation. And I thought it was interesting that Commons leader Penny Mordaunt called Boris's intervention not entirely unhelpful, which is anything but what it would have been to Sunak to hear his Commons leader say that. Um, so, Pat, I'll start with you first because I know you're something of an expert in the, the area of Northern Ireland. And I remember many, many years ago you commenting long before even a referendum was taking place that Northern Ireland would be a problem in that instance Mm -hmm. um and you know how do you this this is a potentially very significant bit of legislation um just wonder what your general thoughts are as we open that bit of the discussion yeah yeah i hate to say i told you so but look where we are Uh, i was the shadow as you know the shadow europe minister during the referendum and i made a number of um statements saying you know that our economy if we leave the european union our economy could suffer um and uh, I talked about you know keeping the union together, and um, the peace in Ireland was threatened by us leaving the European Union, um, and talked about you know there could even be food shortages. And I was told that that was all project fear, project fear. Well, you know you look around and you can't get a tomato now. And last night a man went out to coach his children, um, a Northern Ireland policeman, and he's and he was shot. You know. 20 years after the, uh, no, 20 years after the Northern Ireland Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, is where we are, and um, it's 30 years after the initial agreement that we had with, you know, the Dublin Agreement. 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement, and here we here we are. Um, I, I mean, I agree with Keir Starmer. This is a national issue. You'll never ever manage to placate those people who are on the right of the Tory party over these issues, I don't think there is an answer for them. But unless we want to see more, you know, troubles in Northern Ireland, unless we want to see you know, policemen getting shot on a regular basis, um, like the dreadful thing that happened last night in Northern Ireland, we've got to be serious about this. And I think that Key is absolutely right. It's about putting the national interest first. And Carl, do you, have, do you want to come in on that? Um, well, I, I mean, I think Pat's right in the sense that we have to be serious about this, but I'm going to be less serious about it for a moment, just in, in stark contrast, only because I think the the practicalities of it are exactly right, and I think here is right on the point. Uh, but the politics of it is also um, clever and I think ultimately good for the Labour Party. I mean, the for, forcing Conservative MPs to vote for whatever it is uh, whatever you know, whatever comes to the floor of the house uh, will cause division. You know, we've seen Boris make this intervention. Whether it was help, unhelpful or unhelpful, it doesn't matter. Um, the what will be unhelpful is 40, 50, 60 Tory MPs saying they're not going to vote for it, and that seems to be, you know, the the Tory party has been fractious anyway. Uh, there's already talk of moves um, on the budget of reb- you know, rebels on the budget, and that's coming up soon. Something like this is going to be a big 
big division within the Conservative Party. Um, the other bit I think that's sort of interesting, and it may just be a matter of timing, is that Boris didn't specifically go after the deal. He didn't criticise. He didn't criticise the idea of a new deal. He said that Sunak should keep the legislation, which effectively would allow the government to unilaterally withdraw. Um, so he hasn't yet sort of pinned his colours to the mast on that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that changes or whether he's going to sort of, he's going to use that bit of legislation as his kind of jumping off point to, you know, do all the things that he's been doing, cause trouble, um, make himself um, seem like the leader that they should still have and all those other things that put him centre stage. So I think that'll be kind of interesting to see how that kind of plays out as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Welcome, can I just say, I was going to ask Carl, um, my experience of Boris is that Boris will always do what's best for Boris. So I just wondered whether he's kind of, do you think he's hanging back a bit to see what he thinks is going to be best for his return campaign? Um, I mean, I I think, yeah, I think you're right. He'll always do what's best for him. I think he's probably just hanging back to see what, what Sunak does um, and whether this vote happens and how it happens um, at the moment he can you, you know this bit of legislation was his his bit of legislation is something he can point to to say well you know I, I stuck I stuck to my guns on Brexit um, and Sunak isn't doing because he's gonna you know because he will effectively have if, if he wants a deal we'll have to you know we'll have to drop it mm. um, so I think that's what I, that's my sense of it at the moment, and yeah, it, it may be that he moves once once the timeline moves. There's there's also the the point that just to show almost as a dis- demonstration of how fractious this is for the Conservatives. I read somewhere that Swala Braverman was denying that she would re- resign over it. And I just thought, like, for the Home Secretary to have been under pressure on so many different levels, on so many different serious things, for this to be the resignation issue just goes to show, you know, how fractious this is because she's had all sorts of scandal that would have got rid of just about anybody. And because of the deal that she had with Sunak at the start that we all, well, we know about, but we don't, um, was, was sort of, this just seemed to be like, it was almost like, is that going to get rid of you? You know, it just shows how, how crazy it is in terms of how internally hard this is for them. Yeah, and I was thinking as well, if I was Rishi Sunak, I'd be rushing round to accept that that resignation. Where is it? Show me it. I'll I'll take it now. <laughs> um, so Pat, I, I, just on the point of Boris uh, potentially coming back, um, I remember obviously part of our job in calls as well. Obviously that that um, we're advising clients on you know what we think might happen. There's always that, you know, danger in politics that if you think it's going to happen, it won't. Um, and I remember somebody asking me, saying, you know, when Liz Truss went, I said, who do you think will take over? And we, we had a list of people who we thought would go for it, like Gove and, and of course, Rishi Sunak. Um, and and they said, what about Boris? And we all thought, yeah, I mean, come on. If you know about politics, like, it ain't going to happen. And then he got, like, so close to the point where within a very, very short space of time, we were sort of saying... Uh, you need to be aware of this. Um, do you think he could come back? Well, I think that the reason he didn't, and he kind of, I mean, this is just me guessing, but, you know, this is a man who's always had issues with money, hasn't he? You know, somebody paying his, his, for his wallpaper and somebody paying for his holidays and all of these kinds of things that we often see in the headlines. 
I think he was he hadn't made enough money to be able to come back, is my view. I think he will he sees maybe it's just Boris, nobody else, but he genuinely feels, I think, that he is the person who should be running this country. He he thinks he should be king of the world, you know, as he did when he was five years old. And I think he will whether we get, get anybody to support him, although apparently there's lots of Conservative members who would like to see him come back. Um, but you've got to remember it was Conservative members and Conservative members only who were responsible for making this trust our Prime Minister and how well that turned out. Yeah, um, but just, whether anybody else thinks he'll come back or whether any, he has any support, I think he genuinely believes he has the right to do this. I think most Tories do, but I think he thinks it more than the rest of them, definitely. Well, yes. <laughs> I think that was one thing, I'm not sure it was us, I'm sure we did at some point, Pat talked about this, at Eton, every single one of them is going to be Prime Minister, it just so happens that one of them tends to eventually. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's a really interesting, it's really interesting story. I mean, the vote itself is interesting, all the politics around it is is super interesting as well. And I think it's quite, like Carl said, totally agree with that, that clever politics in terms of Keir Starmer and the way that he was able to say to Rishi Sunak call the vote Prime Minister, it'll all be okay we're going to help mm-hmm. and you know that would have just been you know, tongue in cheek music to Sunak's ears not because you know mm-hmm. it makes out that you can't control your party but we'll get this important stuff finished for you and it almost gives, even though we haven't got the majority vote, it almost makes Labour look like they're the ones controlling it as well um, mm. So really good. So Pat, I, I, it was almost perfect timing um, for you in terms of an education topic to talk about. Was uh, Sadiq Khan um, announced this week that he was going to fund free school meals for primary pupils? Um, and as a, a very quick rundown on the on the scheme itself, um, he's setting aside a hundred thirty million pound uh, scheme for primary pupils. That's going to help two hundred seventy thousand pupils saving families four hundred forty pounds. Um, this clearly obviously is for the, the London uh, borough areas. Uh, Starts in September, running for one academic year. And Henry Dimbleby hailed the announcement as absolutely fantastic. And actually similar schemes, which I thought was interesting when we had you on, Pat, were trialled in 2013 in Newham and in Durham. Um, and were said to have had, and I quote, significantly improved academic performance, not just for those who weren't on free school meals before, but actually more even for the children who were already on free school meals because it changes the culture of the school. So I know that you've got a lot of expertise in this area, mm-hmm. Pat, about free school meals. So I'll just open the floor to you to say whatever you want to say on it, first of all. Well, I'm really pleased that Sadiq Khan has done this. I think that I know from experience that children who are hungry just don't learn. And uh, my son, as you know, Malcolm, is a head teacher in his school, every child gets free school meals and he's got second it is a, a secondary school um and he he does it because his school is in a uh, a particularly um poor area of the country um many of his parents uh the children may not be on the benefits that drive them to be able to get free school meals but he says his, the parents have got two jobs three jobs they're on uh, working in the gig economy. They have uh, they're on minimum wage, and they are in many cases less well off than the families who are on the benefits that drive them towards free school meals. So as a result of that, him and his governors have decided that every child deserves to be fed during the day, and as a result, his children learn better and they have good results. So you know, I think there's ample evidence that this works. Um, in all my time in education. 
And I've been saying this to Kim McGuinness recently because I think, you know, she will be the Northeast Mayor, hopefully. Uh, the two, the two um, uh, elements to me that made the most difference to those children who were from the poorest homes and had the highest or the biggest challenges were free school meals, being able to feed children during the day and education maintenance allowance for those children who were 16 to 18, where they had to attend and they had to achieve. But to me, those were the two schemes that actually made the biggest difference to a large number of the poorest children. So I'm really pleased that Sadiq Khan's done this. I hope that um, Andy Burnham and all the other Labour members follow suit. And I hope that in the North East, when we get a North East Mayor, that, that Mayor feels that that's a justifiable and good use of funding. Yeah, I think one of the things when I read this article is, in, in so far as having debate, um, is I, I struggled to just say anything other than that I completely agreed with it, really. Um, Carl, you you live in that area. Um, I suppose uh, it's I t- again, it's one of these no-brainer things. It's almost difficult to have a conversation about it because it just just makes lots of sense. Yeah, I mean, I do live in that area. I live in, in London, um, and yeah, no, I think it's yeah, it's clearly exactly the right thing to do, and it's the right moment to do it as well. Um, when so many people are struggling with the cost of living, you know, there is there's every chance that. The kids that are, you know, eligible for free school meals. There are probably, you know, for every child that's eligible, there's probably one or two that still need them because of, you know, the family's costs have gone up. So it's 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 timely. It's the right thing to do. Um, I ca- I don't think I've got. There's not much I can really add to what you and Pat have said. I think, yeah. I, I mean, the the only. Like the political bit, because we have to talk about the politics, is obviously Sadiq Khan is back up for re-election soon. Um, so it's also, I think, uh, politically, it's a good kind of headline uh, policy, something that he's done um, that he can point to, it, you know, that to tackle the cost, help to tackle the cost of living crisis. Um, so yeah, I, all round good, I think. Great. Um... Okay, so uh, we had premises questions, although I've just realised that my notes completely duplicated another section of our uh, discussion. But um, uh, yeah, it was a it was a typically. I mean, we had Zelensky uh, the other week, so it was a return to regularly scheduled program in very combative um, exchange. Uh, Carl, did you want to say anything regarding PMQs? Because I know it's your section normally. Whether you had any particular points, so we could probably move it on. Um, I don't only because this is the only we haven't managed to watch it because I was too busy in my new job. So sorry for the podcast. If anyone has any comments on PMQs, please do email us because uh, we'd love to hear from them. Um, is, it, is it something you still get to watch every week, Pat? It's something you take time to do. I, I actually was in York yesterday, so I watched it on catch up today earlier. I do, I do watch it, and I, I don't religiously watch it every Wednesday, but I do try and catch it. Yeah, I, st- I still enjoy the Durham County Council meetings, which I'm not sure makes me very dedicated or very sad. Um, but I-, I still find them quite interesting to watch, although they do exasperate me a little bit, like when the Durham County Council, uh, Durham Constabulary's masked, which had me rather infuriated. But um, we're going to last story that we're going to talk about is is a, a crazy one that I read about tonight. I've got to include this um, because Lee Anderson MP, 30p Lee. Um, challenged Steve Bray or has challenged Steve Bray to a boxing match. Now Steve is the uh, you know star Brexit guy on the megaphone, 
um, which is on most TV uh, interviews that you hear, very dedicated to his cause. Um, and Lee, of course, is the MP known for many controversial comments on food banks and talking about um, people being able to make excellent meals for 30 pence earned in the nickname 30p Lee. Um, he has a majority of seven, 5,733 and Lee was the one who beat Gloria Di Piero at the 2019 general election, someone I know you knew quite well, Pat, when you were an MP. Mm. Um, now, GB News has said, and this is, I mean, this is almost farcical, to be honest, but GB News says they plan to host the bout, and they call it Thriller by the River, if it happens near the Thames, so it's getting a little bit crazy. Uh, and Steve Bray says that he will have the fight, providing that Anderson agrees to resign as MP if he beats him. So my view is this won't happen. Again, quite a light one. Pat, is this just an example of crazy politics, or is it... Well, I mean, I think this is a classic example of dead cat on the table um, to divert attention um, and a desperate attempt by Lee Anderson to get re-elected. I mean, the man is toast, let's face it. I agree. Uh, and I think this is what it is. He's just thrown, you know, if Boris Johnson was a was a, a, an absolute master, would, you know, things are getting a bit hot, throw a dead cat on the table to divert everybody's attention. I, I, I would pay to see him get beat. <laughs> but I just don't think it's ever going to happen I would agree I think um, I'm going to bring Carl in on that I mean, I'm not going to let you away with it Carl I'm going to want some comments on it um, but Pat just on the point you said about being toast with the 5,733 majority what do you is there a number because I have a number in my head it's, a, it's not a research number it's just a kind of a, a feeling um as I was talking to someone today and I, and I said uh, about a particular MP, Tory MP, I said, what's his majority? And they said it was 15,000. And I thought, mm, that's kind of like, yeah, kind of a little bit. Maybe I think he would stay on just. Is there a number in your head where you think that, you know, anyone with a majority above X is probably going to be safe or may keep their seat? What's the number where you think we're going to definitely win it back? Well, I, I kind of think that... Um... I mean, what the pundits say is a swing of 10%, 10 to 11% is going to see a Labour majority with a, you know, a very healthy majority. Um, A a swing of 10 or 11% in somewhere like, uh, you know, his constituency, uh, 30p Lee, um, would wipe out his 5,700 and give the Labour, you know, the the, the elected MP something like a 9,000 majority. It's difficult, honestly. I think that politics has changed so much that if you if I, if you go back to what I was saying earlier about Dominic Raab, he had a twenty five thousand majority or twenty thousand majority in two thousand seventeen. He's sitting very very precariously now on just over two thousand. Now I think that's the tectonic plates of, of politics shifting, and I think in the south, I think it's different in different parts of the country. In the south. It's the Remain vote, just as it was the the the, um, the Brexit vote in 2019 in the North. Um, I think the people, I suspect, will vote tactically. I mean, I've got relatives in East Yorkshire who have always voted Labour, but they're going to vote Lib Dem this time because they think that that's the one. And I think there's going to be an anti-Tory vote across the country. So I think it's going to be different things in different places. So you can't just say somebody on a 15,000 majority is going to be safe, because I don't think they necessarily will be. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I think for me, and, I, and that was a very detailed answer, Pat, I appreciate that sort of, I'm looking at kind of anyone under sort of, for me, about 12,500, I feel like are going to be really struggling to hold their seat. 
Um, so I think, yeah, but like you said, there is variances in terms of how that actually plays out in in terms of, of, of swings. One thing that we, we have seen, I totally agree with you, is that there's been different swings in different areas where there used to be more of a mm-hmm. uniform swing. Um, and, of course, we have the effective boundary changes as well to take into yeah. account, um, which, you know, but again, Labour have been so far ahead. And one thing that we haven't talked about that we probably don't have time today, but... The, the effect of winning seats back in Scotland does help Labour out as well, doesn't it? That we I'm like sorry, that. I didn't get I didn't get the last bit, Mark. Just just to say that the, the effect of Labour winning seats back in Scotland that's looking possible in terms of the polls at the moment makes a big difference because yeah. we used to get those 54 seats pretty much every time, um, whereas we, we, get, we have none of them now. Well, we have one. We have one, do we? Oh, I've, we I'm, have one. I missed yes. that one. Edinburgh's, uh, it's one of the Edinburgh seats. Um, we've managed to hold on to him. And I think that has been tactical voting with um, some Tories, certainly lots of Lib Dems, voting Labour to keep out the SNP. But yeah, you're right, for the first time we can see possibility of, of Labour seats back in Scotland. Not that I think it will make any difference. I think the election will be won in England, England and Wales, not in Scotland. No, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think it was one of those things where it made it made that victory harder, but we're so far ahead mm-hmm. that um, it looks like it might not matter, which you know we wouldn't have thought a year ago. Uh, it's it's so fast how it's changed. Carl, I don't know whether you're able to comment um, on the on the boxing match, or who you'd be fancying to, and if you'd be <laughs> interested as a local resident, perhaps get a ticket. I don't know. <laughs> a local resident. Yeah, no. Um, I was trying to work out who I thought would win, um, <laughs> and it's a it's a toss up. I maybe thirty p Lee on the margins, but I feel like they both end up on the floor. <laughs> I think politics as a whole ends up on the floor, actually. But um, <laughs> it would be pretty awful if Lee just walked up and sparked him out. I think everyone would be pretty. Upset about it. it won't get sanctioned. I mean, let's not beat around the bush here. It's not going to get sanctioned <laughs> by anybody. It's going to be like, so yeah, just yeah, it's just classic sort of theatre politics. Like Pat said, a, you know, a distraction, a distraction, <laughs> um, which it, it's worked because it's distracted me. So you know, yeah. there you go. Um, but yeah, I think our view is that I don't expect this to happen. Um, particularly, uh, it's, well, it's madness, isn't it? Um, but it's probably, I'd probably, and to be honest, if it does happen, I bet Matt Hancock's the first person to go in again and just do another one. He's not going to miss that opportunity, although it might cost him a few more quid to get him in the ring. Um, so, Pat, uh, that's just about the end. So, is there any sort of final things you want to sort of raise or let the listeners know? I know you mentioned that you're sporting Kim McGuinness for the selection of, of for the North <laughs> mayoral candidate. Um, yeah. do, you, do you know roughly when that selection, when we'll know who the candidate well, is? Well, um, we don't know when the election is. We, and we don't, I mean, the LA7, the local authorities, have yet to sign off the deal. So we expect that that will happen. We kind of, I'm guessing that the election will be in May 2024. It'll probably be the same date as the local elections, because that saves money. We may even have a general election on the same day. You know, could it could happen? I mean, I I think if Rishi Sunak goes to December or January 2025, isn't it that when they can go to? Um, yeah. I mean, that just smacks of absolute desperation. So it may well go in May 24. Um, 
But do you know what? Power is powerful. If they think they can hang on to it for just even a couple, a few more months, would it? Uh... So I think the election will be in of the uh, for the mayor will be in May 2024. Um, that means that we will need to have the selection in place really by September. So it's going to go pretty soon. As soon as the LA7 sign it off, we'll start moving. And there's also um, there's the East Midlands as well that are working to pretty much the same timeline. Mm. Um, so then mm. all the projections are that, that given without any sort of political obstacle that they hit in terms of votes and ratifications, that that would be uh, May 2024 as well. I think, Patrick, yeah. given that they had the election in December 2019, I think they have until December 2020. No, they don't. Oh, they, they don't. If you check, they, they can, because they, they've got three weeks in which to, to hold an election, oh, it right. can be three weeks after the date of the five years, apparently, which is absolute desperation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but I think that having it at the end of the year was... It brought about a lot of challenges, didn't it, in terms of voting yeah. and things like that. So I think, Un- but then, then again, that wouldn't stop them holding on for dear life. I think in the normal yeah, world, yeah, yeah. it would be the mayor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carl, yeah. any final comments before we wrap up? Uh, no, not from me. Um, just a big thank you to Pat for joining us, and uh, do come back again. You're welcome. Thank you. It's been we'll, great. We'll, we'll get your camera fixed as well. That'd be great. And I'll <laughs> and I'll subscribe as soon as I'm finished here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we've had, if you check back, for just the benefit of anyone who's just found this, because I'm sure people will find it with you being on, Pat, for the first time. We've had some, we've had a couple of guests already. We've had um, uh, Chris, who came on from Labour Housing. It was a great interview about housing. That I was very quiet in, because Carl's the, the housing expert in terms of his, his background. So that was a really interesting, very detailed discussion about planning and, and future planning frameworks and NIMBYs, believe it or not. So, yeah, really interesting if you want to check that one out. And, of course, we had our friend Mike Mike Indian, who, who was a great guest as well earlier on. So, yeah, thanks a lot for giving your time, and we'd have you on any time you want if you're bored on a Thursday night. And uh, we'll look forward to, obviously, we'll, we'll get this out. I'm sure people enjoy hearing your points of view. Um, so, yeah, that, that just about wraps it up for, for this week, and we hope you enjoyed it. Um, Carl, I've already given you a final word, so I think that's all that's left to say is, Thanks again, Pat, and thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>